You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as the drummer for the multi-platinum and two-time Grammy-nominated band Papa Roach. He played drums on the band's first five albums, including the 4.5 million selling monster major label debut album Infest. That album had four global smash hits, including Last Resort, Broken Home, Between Angels and Insects, and Dead Self. So welcome to the podcast, Dave Buckner. Dave, how are you? And can you believe that it's already been over 20 years since the release of Infest? Can you believe that? Uh, I'm, but yes, I can. Uh, uh, but for, first, let me just say, Joel, thanks for having me on, on the podcast. Uh, I'm really grateful to be here. Um, it's just a great opportunity to just, you know, kind of show up and, and just, uh, shoot the breeze and, and, you know, it's cool, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And, um, yeah, man, I, um, when it comes to, uh, I can't believe, you know, it's been 22 years now, you know, since we released the major label debut and I don't, I really don't know what to say. I, I kind of do this little, uh, math experiment with my family. So I'm like, you know, when I was a when I was a kid around 12, 13 years old and discovering music, you know, for, you know, in, in earnest for the first time, uh, I was listening to stuff. So this is like about 88, 89, right? The eighties. And I was listening to music that was, uh, from mid sixties all the way through like mid seventies. I was discovering artists like Jimi Hendrix and the doors and, and, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin, you know, the Beatles. Right. And so that was like 20 years back from from my point of reference as a kid and now i look and i'm like okay the my first album that that i made is now older than than my you know these classic albums that i was listening to as a kid so it's almost like um my my youngest son my son uh bond is is 13 years old so it's right about the same time frame you know what i mean um it's it's weird, man. It feels weird. I don't know. Like, do we do we call it classic rock now, or I, I I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. You know what I mean? It's just pretty wild. Yeah. Now, when I'm when I'm driving and the music that I grew up listening to at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen is on the classic rock stations. You know, like uh, I heard Finger Eleven recently on classic rock. You know, Papa Roach. You're like, oh man, like we're 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 getting old if that's classic rock because for me classic rock is like led zeppelin you know tom petty uh black sabbath all that stuff but you know right. it's an it's an honor to be included in that group right if you're still getting radio play so absolutely and i mean just the the simple fact that you know that album has has stood the test of time you know what i mean it's still still uh listenable and popular today i mean that's that's amazing I mean, uh, Last Resort is just one of those songs that, you know, um, you know, I, I, I always make the analogy, you know, Aerosmith has like Dream On. It's like not their only hit, but it was like their first hit. It's the, uh, you know, it's the song that everyone kind of knows them for. And I'm like, 
you know, last resort's kind of like our dream on, you know what I mean? And it'll always be that, you know, and it's, I mean, that, that song gets spun at, at EDM festival. Like I, I think Steve Aoki dropped it in it set. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, there's that uh, DJ Marshmallow, I think like, dude, there's so many DJs that like drop it in their set. And, like the crazy thing is like, as soon as it comes on, like no matter what room you're in, no matter what country you're in, whether it's a club or a stadium or whatever, like if that song gets dropped, like everyone knows the words, you know what I mean? There's, it's, it's just like this ubiquitous, like, it's like a phenomenon or something. I don't know, dude, I can't explain it, but I, I, it's something special. And, and I'm really grateful for that, you know? When I ask bands that are celebrating the 20, 25, 30 year anniversary of their, their breakthrough albums, uh, most of them say it, it feels like yesterday, but it also feels like a lifetime ago. Like it feels like both of them because you remember writing and recording the album. You remember what it's like when the album comes out and blows up and radio play and music videos and awards and all that stuff. But also there's the lifetime of like personal growth and having kids and, and you're in a way different place now than you were then. It, it, does that feel accurate? It does feel like recent, but also feels like a lifetime ago. Absolutely. That's entirely accurate. I mean, you know, I can remember, I can remember uh, where I was, you know, where we were during the recording process of that record, everything leading up to that, you know what I mean? Like going from a, an independent band to getting signed to a major label and then writing, writing that song and that album, going in the studio to record it, you know what I mean? And then, um, and then after, you know, after the album drops, everything kind of became a blur, you know what I mean? So I, there's bits and pieces that I can pick out and I kind of can put, put the story together in my mind, but it all, it all happens so fast and so quick. And my life changed, you know, the year 2000, my life changed entirely. It was, yeah. it's, it's all a hot mess after that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, you know, and like you're saying, you know, like now, you know, I'm a dad, you know, I have, uh, I have uh, my son and, and uh, my stepson and, and my priorities are uh, are have shifted, you know what I mean? And and it's a it's a different, you know, like um, different different life. It's all, it almost seems like it's a lifetime ago, but I still remember it like it was like it had just happened. So a few months ago, I had our mutual friend uh, Rich Beto as a guest on the podcast. So for our listeners, uh, he was the the drummer for Finger Eleven and Saint Sonia. And when I'm done interviews, I always ask my guests, "Hey, man, can can you think of anyone that would make for an amazing interview in the future?" And he had just two people in mind. He had Seku Lamumba, the drummer for Big Rack, who I had as a guest a few months ago. And he said, Dave Buckner, and that's how we ended up here today. So that's our connection. And I wanted to kick off this episode powerfully. So I reached out to Rich and Rich sent in some kind words to help me out here. So uh, he, he must really love you because he wrote a novel. So hang tight. And this is from Rich Beto. So here we go. He says, man, oh, man, I don't even know where to begin when it comes to my friend, Dave Bucky Suds. Is that that's the nickname there? Bucky says Buckner. That's his nickname for me. Yep. yep. There In you go. Circle, that, that's the nickname I go by. Yep. There you go. So he says, I don't know where to start, but I'll start here. When I and millions of other fans around the world first heard Cut My Life into Pieces, This is My Last Resort, we were hooked. Those words were powerful indeed. 
But it was when the drums kicked in that that monstrous anthemic groove that the world began to move. They began to dance, mosh, jump and scream. That was the moment we heard and felt the power that was Papa Roach. And the world hasn't been the same since. Dave Buckner is a ferocious drummer with a style all of his own. Millions of kids and adults around the world air drum to his drumming every day and learn how to play his parts on the drum set. He's an icon and so very respected among his peers. I've had the pleasure of playing the festival circuit with his band over the years, and I can never keep my eyes off of him. He makes it look easy, and it ain't, trust me. Even just a couple of years ago, me and Dave had a big jam night in Hollywood with a bunch of friends, and I was once again stunned at his power. There would be no Papa Roach without Dave, partly because he had a, a part in naming the band. He was the sound of those first few iconic records. It's kind of funny that both me and Dave don't really have a clear memory of actually hanging out with each other back then, though. We, we both know we did, but it's all just a foggy blur now, which leads me to the next part of this. In recent years, me and Dave have become very close. We share in something that is very important to both of us, something that nearly killed both of us, something that only a few people can understand, that we only trust in certain people to talk about. We share our victories, our failures, our fears, and our rock bottoms. Between the two of us, we try to help others do the same. With friends like Dave, I can proudly say I'm an addict in recovery. Dave has helped me and many others uh, to become sober and to thrive in their lives. I know I can call him anytime, day or night, and he would be there for me. I feel really lucky to have him in my life. Dave is also an amazing father and husband. He is a guide for me on how to raise my family. I friggin' love you, Dave. That sounds like Rich. Uh, and I'm so blessed to have a guy like you in my life. So that's Rich Beto, uh, former drummer, Finger Eleven, and Saint Asonia. How's that for? Oh for, man, that uh, was quote? that was amazing and beautiful, man. Rich, I just I love that dude to pieces, man. He's a life. He's one of those one of those guys that, um, yeah, like like he said in in his uh, in his novel, right? We we ran into each other. Our paths crossed many times along the way, you know, in our old lives. And, um, but, you know, I know him in a completely different way and, mu and I feel much closer to him today than I ever did when we were, uh, running amok, you know, out in the world. And, um, he's, he's a lifer. He's a lifer, man. That's, that, that's my boy till death. You know what I mean? So dude, thank you so much, Beto. Team Beto. That was awesome, man. That was great. Team Beto. So, so our, our listeners, they're, they're seeing you now and they see, this awesome room with all these multi-platinum plaques behind you and awards and all that stuff. They see this rock star. They're seeing kind of the end result of a lifetime of work and dedication and practice and vision and goal setting and all that stuff. So I like to take it back to the beginning uh, and, and go through a journey to take everyone from the beginning to where you are today. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where did this love of music come from? And, and is there maybe an earliest musical memory that, that jumps out at you as, as being meaningful. Yes, absolutely. Um, my earliest musical memory is riding around in the backseat of my mom's 1960, I think it was like a 66 Ford Falcon. And I think I must've been around four years old and she had two eight tracks that I remember. And one of them was Pink Floyd, The Wall. And the other was like B-52s. I forget which album, but it had the song Rock Lobster on it. And so 
my earliest musical memory, like when I first, you know, kind of tuned in to like, you know, what is this happening? You know, was um, riding in the backseat of my mom's car and, and it, the song in particular was uh, in the flesh, like the first, the first song on the Pink Floyd, the wall album, like just the pure, like bombast, you know, of that, of that song. Like it just, and, and she listened to it so much. And I just like, it, I internalized that album so much that um, it's become part of my my musical DNA. But that's literally like the first album that I can remember listening to as a kid. Pink Floyd I, the Wall. I think we have to give your mom props because uh, there's no better start to a, a, a life in music, a musical career than getting Pink Floyd the Wall uh you know, soaking that in through osmosis from your mom playing it and getting comfortably numb and another brick in the wall and all the great songs off that album. So can we give a powerful shout out to your mom for that one? That was that's that's pretty amazing. And uh, yes, thank you so much, mom. Thank you for that. There you go. And how did you gravitate towards the drums in the beginning? So it's one thing hearing that music at four years old and, and becoming a fan of listening to music, but it's something else to actually start playing by picking up an instrument. Yeah, um, my 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 love for drums came. I can, I can still remember the moment I was over at my aunt's house. So music is you know music has been in and around my family, you know over the generations. Like my um, my uh, my grandmother's father was a trumpet player in a in a uh, a big band in um, Los Angeles. That's where our family's from. And um, I forget what it was called, but his name was a uh, Prisco Castro, and he played the trumpet uh, in, in a big band. And, and they were they had like a, they got to play on the radio and stuff like this, like in the '40s, right? Um, so that was like my first, you know, when I was talking to my family about it, like, like kind of just like they were sharing with me like the lineage of like yeah, you know, music's and you know, my family's great lovers of music, and my aunt, my aunt Allie. Uh, she had an amazing uh, vinyl and CD collection. And one day I was over at her house and I was listening. So I discovered like The Doors, Metallica, um, Suicidal Tendencies through my Aunt Allie. She actually used to take me to, because um, Suicidal Tendencies is local from the area of Los Angeles I'm from. And I actually got to go, you know, it's funny that I don't actually remember this, but I'm going to share it as if I do. But according to my aunt, she said that she took me to go see Suicidal Tendencies at the Culver City Vets Hall um, back, like, I think even before their first record deal. Like, they were playing at the basically the community center in Culver City. And um, she had taken me, I think I was maybe six or seven years old, and got to see uh, Suicidal. And so, um, um, you know, so my aunt has been a great inspiration, you know, as far as my, my passion and love for music. But I was over at her house one day, and I was listening to Beatles, Sgt. Peppers, and uh, particularly the song um, A Day in the Life. And I don't know what it was about that song or that moment or whatever, but something inside me just clicked. And I just heard, like, I heard it. I heard the drums for the first time. I can actually, like, differentiate what the drums were doing apart from what the rest of the music was doing, right? that spoke to me. And um, so that's when I decided, like I wanted to be a drummer, that was it. And the rest is history. So w would you consider Ringo as one of your early drum influences then? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. 
for sure. Um, yeah, dude, Ringo, he's like, he's one of the masters, dude. He's, he is the legend. He's the legendary drummer in rock and roll, right? Him, for, for me, like him and Bonzo, you know, like John Bonham, you know, Bonham's such a, uh, he's such a drum idol to me that uh, I named my son after him. Yeah. So. There's, I mean, there's no bigger honor that you can bestow than naming your child after someone, right? So, yeah, for that's sure. A, that's amazing. And as a kid, was there anything you wanted to be growing up before you really got into music seriously and, and decided that you want to do that for a living? Anything else that you wanted to be as a kid? Oh, as a kid, like, you know, when I was just dreaming of what I, what I would be when I grew up. Yeah. I actually wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. Well, actually... What I really wanted to do for a living was to pilot those um, giant uh, mech robots from the cartoon Robotech. Like I, I, in my imagination, those things were real or they would be, they would, they would come into existence by the time I was an adult and then I could pilot one. And then, you know, and then I kind of realized, well, if that doesn't happen, you know, I'll, I'll set up for flying fighter jets. That'd be awesome. You know what it's, I mean? So it's that, good, that was, it's good to have a dream and it's good to have a backup plan, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. And if, if I met you at 12 years old, who would I be meeting? Dude, me, 12. Um, no beard you know, yet. No beard, no beard. Um, you know, kid, local, you know, city kid from LA, Westside kid, beach, you know running to the beach, running, running around town uh, with his aunt, taking the, taking the Santa Monica big blue bus everywhere. You know what I mean? Kind of in, very in, fiercely independent. Um, pretty good in school. Never really got in trouble. Chubby kid, you know, I was always a, a overweight kid my entire, my entire life until, uh, until uh, just about 11 years ago. Um, you know, so maybe a little bit, you know, uh, insecure, wanted kids, wanted the other kids to like, wanted, always wanted to be one of the cool kids, but never felt like one. You know what I mean? Um, great love. I love to skateboard. You know, I had my dog town, my dog town skateboard that I would, you know, trek, trek around city in and, uh, or, you know, what else? Uh, yeah, man, that's kind of, that's kind of me, dude, you know, loved, uh, love to draw. You know, I was always like uh, doodling or, you know, making uh, creations, drawing logos and cars. I really like to draw cars. Um, uh, you know, that, so that that's me, man. Music, art, skating, um, the beach, you know, LA, LA lifestyle as a kid, as much as a kid can take in, you know what I mean? Um, independent and um, yeah. And, and what happened 11 years ago that allowed you to get in shape for the first time in your life? Uh, I made a decision that, well, you know, what happened was uh, my son was born in 2009. And at that point in my life, I had, uh, I had gotten to a weight that I, I, I was the heaviest I'd ever been in my life. I was over 400 pounds. And after a couple years of, you know, trying to chase after him and realizing it wasn't working. I, I finally made a, a, a decision and took on the commitment that like, hey, if I want to stick around, like, because, you know, on top of just not being able to keep up with the kid, I mean, like, you know, if you're carrying around 
an unhealthy amount of extra weight. There's so many different comorbidities, they call them, you know, right, that can interfere with your health and and basically affect your lifespan. And so I was like, if I really want to, if I really am going to be serious about being a dad, I need to be serious about my health. And um, that was one of the decisions I made was uh, to, you know, shit or get off the pot, so to speak, you know what I mean? And, and, and take it seriously and, and just drop the weight. So. Wow. Well, look, looking at you now, I can't imagine you at 400 pounds, man. You look, you look great, man. That's awesome. And, and oh, even, even today, that's, that's a big priority where you're, you, you watch what you eat and there's exercise and all that. Well, nowadays, I mean, there was a time uh, about five or six years ago when I was doing the, I had gotten so far into like the fitness thing. I was like doing the insanity workout, eating completely clean, like protein shakes, kale, and you'd like grilled chicken, like was all I ate. Right. And, uh, and tons of water. And like, I was doing the insanity workout and I, I, my fat level was down to like, I think 13%, which is like almost like professional athlete level of, of, uh, fitness. I was in the best shape of my life. Um, but, uh, I, I was, I, I would wake up sore every day and it like, it was like, Oh man, is, is this supposed to be like this? And, and, uh, so uh, eventually I kind of relaxed. I was like, you know, I'm going to take it a little bit easier. Plus, you know, like it's hard to maintain when you're at that level of fitness. It's hard to maintain that. Like you have to really get after it. You know what I mean? It takes like 80%. It takes about 20% of the effort to get 80% of the results. And then it takes 80% of the effort to get that last 20% of results. If you, if you feel what I'm saying and to maintain that, I mean, like I would have to be working out like a savage. So Anyway, so today, like, I'm rocking the dad bod, you know what I mean? Like, it's all good. It's all good, you know, like, but I'm still, I still take what I eat very seriously, you know, like, you know, try and eat the best I can, you know, I I, I really take, uh, make my nutrition a priority, you know what I mean, and my macros and make sure I'm getting the right amount of protein and veg, green veg and that kind of stuff. But anyway, yeah, that's my life today. Yeah. If, if you're, if you have kale in your diet, you're pretty serious about your health. So uh, if, if we go back to when you were 16, if you and I were friends at 16, you invited me over to listen to some music. What albums would you be spinning for me at 16? Bro. Okay. Let me make sure I got the time right on this. And I think I do, but definitely, uh, definitely Jane's addiction. Right. Beastie but Boys, check your head. Is this is this early 90s then? This or? would be this would be 92, I think. Okay. Yeah. Right. So Jade's Addiction, Nine Inch Nails, um, anything from Seattle, like all of it. I loved all of it. All that whole movement. Like when a record came out, I was on top of it. You know what I mean? Uh who else was listening to it at 16? I basically like I became a sponge. For music so it wasn't just rock too it was like a lot of alternative some metal lots of hip-hop so like beasties cypress hill uh like tribe called quest um trying to think of wu-tang came out i think they came out like maybe when i was 17 but yeah right around that same age so like tons of like wu-tang and funk dubious and uh a lot of those like uh those 90s hip-hop records that came out that were like they sounded like just really grungy and dirty and kind of lo-fi and a lot of the rock music was sounding lo-fi 
And then because of the, like Kurt Cobain and his, like he was kind of the, the, the poster child for this ethos that like, you know, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to sell out to corporate record labels. You can make your own music and do it all yourself. Everything was DIY at that time. And so it was about making zines and making your own music, making your own records and merch and t-shirts and doing everything yourself. And um, that's when we, that was right at the time we started, started the band was 90, 92, 93. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that was, that was my musical diet. Who else was a Lila So all the, on top of all those bands, um, White Zombie, um, Anyway, we'll just leave it there. I think that's a, that's a that's a pretty expansive list for you. Man, what what a good time for Ooh, music. Fugazi. I forgot. Fugazi. Fugazi. There you go. So, so Fugazi. Sure. 1991-1992 is widely considered the greatest period, modern period for rock music. So 91-92 you have the debut from Rage Against the Machine, the self-titled album. You have Metallica, the Black Dude, Album. Yeah. You have Red Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood, Sex, Sugar, Magic. You have Stone Temple yes. Pilots. Um, is it Core, I think, around then? You have a, a yeah, Nine Inch Nails one. album in there. You have Guns Guns and Roses. I think Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 is around then. Um, ni 91 is like as good as it gets, man. I think there's a Soundgarden album in there. You got Pearl Jam. 10 i think might be 91 uh nirvana never mind like it's literally the greatest year ever for, for rock music and it was when you turned 16 like the year where you really absorb music and and kind of shape who you are as a musician so i think that's pretty amazing yes every single one of those albums that you listed i was listening to at the time and dude even like uh motley crew dr feelgood which i think came out in uh 89 but to me, to this day, is still my favorite album from Proof. You know what I mean? Um, I think with that album, they they had just taken it to a different level, and it was it was like the coolest album I'd ever heard from them. Um, but so also in '92, if you remember the Lollapalooza when it used to be a tour, right? So I got to go to Lollapalooza at Shoreline Amphitheater '92. I was 16, and the lineup was Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Ministry, Cypress Hill um jesus and mary chain who else there's a few more uh there's a few more on that list but i mean dude ministry psalm 69 what a fucking album that was just amazing i mean like dude they, you know what i mean just the whole industrial there's so many different movements and music going on at that time too whether it was like the retro 70s like I always thought like Soundgarden was like the the reincarnation of Black Sabbath. It was like Black Sabbath for my generation. You know what I mean? Um, and then like the punk rock from from Seattle, like Nirvana, it was like very like very retro. But then like you had like Nine Inch Nails and Ministry, and there was a few other industrial bands at that time too. I think Cam FDM. You know if you remember them. Um, Dude, yeah, it was a great time. Great time for music. And I was soaking it all in. I was just a, a sponge taking it all in. And how early on did you know that you had something to offer as a drummer, that you actually had skill there and that this could be something you do uh, for a living as a career? You know, that's a great question because I think even to this day, I still question like what it is that I bring to the table, right? So I'm like, 
I know I can play, but what is it that makes me more special or has given me this opportunity to, to, to make a career out of it? And I think for me, you know, the answer wasn't so much, I, it wasn't my talent or my, 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 my uh, technical ability, but it was my drive and vision. I think that care. So like it was, I had an intense need, like burning in my heart, like to express myself. And I wanted, I wanted as many people as, as could be to hear what I had to say. And my voice was the drums and my voice was, you know, starting this band and, and building this, this brand. I mean, now you could look back in the day, it didn't feel like it, but I'm like, dude, we built, you know, I helped build a brand and a multi-million dollar company from scratch. You know what I mean? Like we're a rock and roll startup, you know, we started in the garage. And so that, I think for me, that's what it was. It wasn't like, Oh man, I'm like the best drummer around. You know what I mean? It was more like, Hey, like I really passionate about sharing my, my soul through this musical voice. And I'm really passionate about music itself because music is one of the greatest tools of communication we have as a species, right? Like it's the thing that like, you know, you can have your favorite movies and like, yeah, that's cool. Like it's a great movie. And like, that was a great, but when you hear one of your favorite songs or like only music to me, in my experience, when I hear certain songs, I go, my mind, my memory goes right back to like a certain time period. It's like a soundtrack to my life. You know what I mean? And as far as emote, like uh, to me, music is the most powerful communicator of emotion. You know what I mean? And, and it can take, it can transport me, you know, to different, to basically different points along, along my journey of life. And it's the only thing I found that can do that. You know what I mean? Like I can, I can see a place and remember things, but when I hear a song, it's I'm there. They, uh, they did a whole movie on that. So there's a movie on the power of music when it comes to dementia and memories and all that stuff. And for people that are basically can't function anymore because of Alzheimer's or dementia, suddenly they put, they make a mixtape of their favorite music when they were younger and they, they live and right up, they come back and they're there, they're there and they're talking about that time. And it, it's weird. People come back to life. And what it is, is with dementia, it's like you, you lose the memories, but when you have music attached to a memory, it stores it somewhere else that doesn't get wiped out by dementia and Alzheimer's. So it music can trigger deeper memories and, and that's why they suddenly, you know, they haven't been mobile in years and they get up and they dance. They remember the dance that they were doing at the time. They remember, they start talking, like you take the headphones off and they're still, they're still back. And they're like, oh, I used to whatever and do this. And they haven't spoken in six months. It's crazy. So just to add to you talking about, you've never seen anything but music have that kind of power on people and memories and emotions. So to tie in with that, yeah. That's wild. That's wild. And that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, that's, that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So thank you, Joel, for that. I'll, I'll, I'll have to look into that. I'll send you that link. In. Yeah. The, send me uh, a link, please. Yeah. Yeah. The, awesome. Yeah. The movie's uh, free on, on YouTube. So I'll get that to you. Memory movie. Just got to make a note. So um, if I'm following the timeline correctly, so uh, you were 16 around 1991, which means that you were only about 18 
at the time where Papa Roach starts forming. Um, did you play in any other bands growing up or you were so young when, when Papa Roach started that that's basically the only band that you were in? Yeah. So, um, yeah, 16 and I turned 16 in 1992. We started Papa Roach in 1993, early, like February of 1993. Actually, I think we had been talking about it before, like over that winter or something like that. Cody and I had met, um, at school on, on, uh, on the football field. We were both, uh, we were both playing football and, uh, like, you know, during practice, like when we, when we weren't busy doing drills or whatever you do at football practice, like we would just chop it up and talk about music and stuff. Um, what was the question again? I started jogging. If, if you, if you had played in any other bands before. Oh, other bands. Yeah. I had in junior high, I had, I had a band called, I don't even know if we had a name, uh, but I remember there was a rival band at school. I went to Lincoln middle school in Santa Monica and, and um, me and my friends had a, a band. Actually, the guitar player from my junior high band now plays in a band called The Voids with uh, Julia uh, Julian Casablanca. That's guy the Strokes. Mary Agmai. That's the yeah, Strokes, Julian. Julian. Ju Julian, yeah, Julian from The Strokes has a side band called The Voids. And um, the guitar player for my junior high band, this guy Amir, plays, plays guitar for that band. And uh, I think that's a cool story. I like to share stuff like that um, when I remember it. But um, I had a couple bands before Roach in high school. Like when I, I my family moved to, to Vacaville in about in 91 uh, was my first year living there, going to school. And I had a uh, I was in a punk band, like a very dead milkman inspired punk band called Chernobyl Kids. Good. Name. Right? Did you did you hear that? Was that did that come through that ding? I didn't hear anything. On, okay, I just heard it in my in my computer. So at least if it's not, yeah, hopefully it's not coming through Zoom. So Chernobyl Kid, uh, and then I was in a uh, like a new wave type, um, a new wave band, like this band that I think we were very derivative. Of, I want to say like uh, maybe Depeche Mode and Ned's Atomic Dust Band. Anyway, that band was called Nude, N U N D, Nude. And then my third band in Vacaville in high school uh, was uh, actually our first name was the Groove Merchant. The Groove Merchants. These but, are all good names. I'm impressed. Right. These are good right? names. And uh, but the Groove Merchants, uh, which you know had me, Jacoby, Ben Luther on trombone, and Will James on bass. And uh, we we shortly after after name after naming ourselves the Groove Merchants, we changed the name to Papa Roach, and that was the first iteration of Papa Roach was me, Cobe, Ben Luther on trombone, Will James on bass. Okay, and so you know you knew Jacoby from football. He knew you were a drummer. You knew he was a singer. And by talking about music you guys decided at some point we should, we should jam and, and maybe we could do a, a project together, be a band. Yes. Yep. That's exactly how it happened. And, uh, I mean, really that that's really, the story is just as simple as that. Really. We were just both passionate about music and, um, actually, um, Jacoby was meant to be him and I, when we first decided to jam together, he, he had, um, started playing bass. He was playing bass. And he had bought, uh, you know, like this uh, 
cheap beginner's base from the pawn shop. And uh, he was going to bring it over and jam. He may have he may have come over once or twice to my garage and jammed. Um, and shortly after, like we started that, um, his base was stolen out of the back of his truck. And he's like, dude, you know, like our dreams are our dreams are, are dashed, dude. Like, you know, we can't jam. I don't have a base anymore. I'm like, I don't know. Just sing. It's free. You don't have to buy a new base. Just be the singer. And he's like. That's a great idea. And then we ended up, we found, we got a hold of this kid, Will, who was a, a, a recent transplant who also moved from Southern California. He moved from Norco, California to Vacaville. And he had a little reputation around school as being a really rad bass player. And he was, he was a really awesome bass player. And, uh, and then, yeah, we just reformed the band <laughs> with Jacoby as the singer. That's that's a little bit of history there. We have our first fan question sent in. So this is from Amanda Luciano. She says, I have always wanted to know where they got their name from. So there was there was uh, Papa something else before Papa Roach, right? And there was a name change. Can you share a little bit? Wasn't there Papa Gato or something? Or is this false information? Yeah, no. Uh, first of all, thank you, Luciano, for your question. It's a great question. And yeah, we had... Um, we, so, like I said, the original name of the band was the Groove Merchants, but um, we decided we want to. We had a, we had a, a, a bunch of names written down, like on a sheet of notebook paper, um, in different columns, like you know, you know, good content, you know, contenders, and then like, you know, maybes, and then like throwaways, like ah, you know, like if we can't think of anything else, we'll just you know name whatever. And one of the contenders I came to the table with was Papagato, which is means Papa Cat, you know, Daddy Cat. And it was the name of this Latin jazz album I was listening to at the time. Um, there's a conga player named Pancho Sanchez who um, who puts out, you know, put out records and I was listening to his record, Papa Gato. And I'm like, I just threw it on the list. And Kobe's like, that's a great idea. Like I, he's like, I really like that. And he's like, but what if we call it Papa Roach? He's like, because my stepdad's, my stepdad's um, dad, so my step-grandfather is a, uh, is uh bill roach right like and everyone calls him papa roach so what if you call the band papa roach and i was like that's a great idea but your stepdad the family they spell their last name r-o-a-t-c-h with a t I'm like what if we took out the t and then we can make it you know about bugs and you know other other roach other you know associated topics that you might think of when when you hear the word roach you know what i mean it's man, the Groove Merchants is a great name, but uh, you it's know, good. It, but with you guys being heavier, you know, if you were uh, maybe in a different style, the Groove, you know, the the Groove Merchants would be the right name. But I think as you guys maybe got heavier, um, the the name change is is probably good. I mean, things have worked out well with the name Papa Roach. So I'm just I impressed think, with the Groove Merchants. I mean, that's a great name. Was, I think we got that. I think we lifted that from. I think it's like a Beastie Boys lyric. Yeah. I think uh, there's a, a rap ad rock is saying he's like yada 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 because I'm the groove merchant. And we're like, ooh, that's good. Write that one down. But yeah, yeah, I would say I would say everything that worked out nicely just, with, the, with the name we chose. Yeah, just, they, things turned out just fine. So you you guys formed the band in high school. You you get the name changed to Papa Roach. Uh, lore has it that you entered a talent show 
and you guys didn't actually win the talent show. And my question is, do you think the winners of that talent show also went on to sell, you know, six, seven, eight million albums? Uh, do you think they had the same success as, as you guys who didn't win? Oh, man, you know, I can't remember who won the talent show. And you know what? I don't I don't remember it as being a competition. I think it was just like a showcase of talent. You know, I don't think there was like an actual winner declared. But if there was, I don't think there was any losers that day. I'll just say that maybe if there was a winner and we weren't it, whoever did win that, I mean, that was, I'm sure, one of the bright, shining moments in their life. And they could hang that on their and they they can always brag that they won the talent show over Papa Roach. Like, dude, you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. that's a great that's a cool that's a cool claim to fame right there. So it's documented. Um, it's documented that they are better and or more popular than Papa Roach. I mean, it's it's yes. right there. Yeah. For February of 1993 at Vacaville High School. Yes, that is entirely true. That's awesome. I, I have some some kind words sent in here. From Sonny Mayo, who a uh, member of Snot, Seven Dust, Amen, and uh, is with Rock for Recovery now. Uh, so this is from Sonny. Sonny says, Snot opened for Papa Roach, Incubus, and Salmon at a youth center in Vacaville. I'm saying that right? Vacaville? Vacaville, right? correct. In Vacaville, California in 1995. I had just moved from VA to join Snot a few months earlier, and my head was spinning at how powerful the scene was at that time. Our paths only crossed a few times over the su subsequent years, uh, but it was all love every time we connected. I was aware that Dave struggled with substances, just as I did in those tumultuous in the tumultuous world of band life in the music business. I'm beyond grateful that we hit a sufficient bottom and have rebuilt our lives with joy and purpose. Love you, Dave. That's from Sunny Mayo. It's not Seven Dust. Oh man, Sunny, that's my boy, dude. I love Sunny. Funny, I mean, like, dude, I don't know if the listeners out there can kind of put together. There's a there's an underlying current, a, a theme going on uh, here. If uh, if you've been li listening carefully, but uh, yes, yeah, Sunny and Rich are are very good friends of mine, and I love them to death. And yeah, once again, you know, both of them lifers for sure. But so, yeah, dude, we 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 played with the uh, we snot. We had a chance. For, uh, to to be to headline over snot at our local community center in Vacaville in the in the mid late 90s so as as we move forward through the uh, the timeline with Papa Roach through the through the discography uh we've made it up to 1997 and this is the release of the independent album uh old friends from young years uh when you think back to that debut album uh what thoughts, memories, emotions come back to you? I mean, that kicked off this lifelong journey with Papa Roach. What comes back to you now when you think of that independent album? Well, actually, what's coming back to me right now is can we just circle back to Snot real quick and talk about how fucking dope Snot was? Like, I Let's don't know do if it. you remember the first time you ever heard Snot, but oh my God, dude. They like, dude, the band, I mean, it was uh, Sonny and Lynn and Tumor and John, right? And the drummer, Shannon Larkin. Like, amazing band, dude. Like, every time we got to, like, we we opened for them uh, quite a few times, uh, just around, like, you know, like, and then, like I said, one time we had a chance to, for them to open for us. But I remember just, I would just sit, We like, I remember we played, one of the shows I remember in particular was this uh, little, small little pub 
in Chico, California. And there was no backstage, so everyone was just out on the floor. I think the drums were set up in the front of the in the front of the pub, like next to like a, a big like bay window. And that's where the drums were. And I just remember sitting on the floor next to Shannon and just watching him just get after it. Like, dude, it's such an amazing that whole band was amazing. Actually, no, 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 I got it wrong. You know who you know who the drummer for song was? Jamie. What am I thinking? It was Jamie, but he reminded me of Shannon. He reminded me like the way he played reminded me of Shannon Larkin. And uh, with Shannon is amazing drummer. Don't don't get it twisted. Like my mind's a little now that I'm now that I'm a little bit more, uh, ex, you know, got a little bit more life under my belt. The memories kind of get squirrely. But dude, Jamie, oh my god, dude, amazing, amazing. Anyway, so sound was great. But anyway, I digress. Sorry about that. I so, had, for, I for our listeners, so for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the band Snot, if 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 they were going to listen to just one Snot album, which one do you recommend for them to start the, with? The first one, the first, get some. Yeah, or at least that's the first album that I knew uh, that they put out. And they might—I don't know if they had indie releases before then, but yeah, get some. It's the, the album with uh, Lynn's dog on the on the cover, and he's got like a tennis ball on his nose. And the logo is written on the tennis ball. Awesome. Amazing band. Perfect. And and your album in 97, what what comes to mind with that debut album? And uh who who were the Papa Roach's biggest influences at the time of of writing and recording that album? Because that's a heavy album. And you know, it, it's it might even be Papa Roach's heaviest album. I just gave it a spin the other day. So uh so we're talking about old friends from young years right the, the yeah, indie record the indie record. Our first our first attempt at making a full length album and we recorded it at um tobin's dad's studio in pittsburgh california he had a garage studio that um he had uh you know he had a tracking room uh vocal booth all the mics adat machines you know some bells and whistles and toys you know to get it to get it on get everything on tape we recorded it to digital audio and it was just i think we we spent you know we scrounged and saved and and, and pitched in and and uh we were able to put together i think it cost us six hundred dollars to record that record just for the recording and then you know like printing and design of course like the album cover i designed the album cover and did all the cd layout and everything like that and then we had it printed through there's a company called disc makers out there i think they're still around but um that's how we that's how we um produced and distributed the um the record was through disc makers and i did all the all the artwork and stuff like that but um dude at that time and i think you might i mean as far as just like pure i remember like the recordings, I mean, that was before we were just so raw then, right? So raw. And we wanted to be experimental and dissonant and heavy. And then, but there was like this kind of like this current of like uh, expressing like emotional, I think even like the whole like disgusting mental health and stuff like that, it's kind of, you know, starts to, creep its way in on that on that record it's kind of it was kind of you know like if you think about a lot of Papa Roche music I mean it's it's a lot about you know 
confronting your demons, overcoming, and then, you know, persevering through the other side, you know, and that, that I think that's been, that's been uh, consistent throughout the career, but, you know, with me and then after me, you know, if you listen to, to the lyrical content and stuff like that, but at that time, yeah, it just, we just wanted to be heavy and we were definitely, we were so young and raw and, and it was a great time to be that because music was that at that time. There was so many, like I said, independent, and like it was cool to sound lo-fi it was cool to sound like you didn't have uh, a big budget studio you know what i mean like that that was what was cool and and then for us like and then if you listen to that record my my pink floyd the wall story you know kind of makes that record makes more makes more sense because there's a lot of like little um there's little uh you know, not, not I wouldn't say skits, but little like vignettes of sound and things like that kind of like bleed from one song to another. And that was that I brought that in because because of Pink Floyd, the wall, like, you know, how do how do I wallify this album? How do I make a, an album that takes you on a journey? And. Uh, where's, were we talking about influences, too? Yeah. What you know, because that's a you know, the recording is very raw. Um, yeah, for sure. The, the album is very heavy. I mean, I'd say it's one of Papa Roach's heaviest albums. You can you can hear that it's it's Papa Roach with the signature, uh, you know, singing, screaming, rapping, all of that's there. All the elements of Papa Roach. I'm curious what the the biggest influences were for all the the members of the band together as a whole. Because you might have brought in, you know, Pink Floyd influence and the grunge influence. Maybe the other members something else. So I'd say as a whole. Uh, which bands do you think influenced that recording specifically the most? Dude, I'm going to say, I'll say Faith No More, for sure. Mr. Bungle, which is another Mike Patton band, right? Um, BC Boys, Rage, obviously. Uh, like Cypress Hill, right? Uh, the Pixies, if that makes any sense, but it does. Like one of the songs is actually the name of the song is like something we heard on a Pixies record where it's like uh, Black Francis was like screaming, like, I said, you fucking die. And like, we're like, we wrote a song like and named it that like it's, you know, so. Um, but, you know, like just the kind of like. Uh, melodic, you know what I mean? Like there, there's there's definitely like Pixies influence. If that it's, it sounds so weird to say it, but it's true. And um, you know, there was a local band at that time who were kind of like our big brothers in the scene, or we saw them as that. And I think they just saw the like little little flies that they should, you know, like swat away. But there was this local band at that time called the Deftones wow. that really inspired us when we were starting out. You know what I mean? Like we would go see them play like in 1993 at Berkeley Square in the Bay Area, which is like a little tiny, like 100 person club. You know what I mean? It's where Primus recorded Suck on This, like their live record. Just a small little, just like, just a little shithole, really, dude. But it was amazing. It was beautiful. You so know? this is before their album track. Adrenaline comes out? Yeah, before, before Adrenaline, for sure. And they sounded like, it's crazy because they, they were on their way, like, when you think of adrenaline, like everyone thinks like that's like their first, their first kind of taste of Deftones or what Deftones was going to become. 
But before that, there was a lead up to that sound as well. They they weren't like fully formed. Like even in adrenaline, they weren't fully formed, but the seed was there, right? But I remember Deftones when they had like, when they like had even more like bad brains and reggae kind of in the music. They had like a straight up reggae song, like a hip hop song. And um, they were just like the local heroes, like in the scene. But Sacramento had such a great scene at that time too. There was another band called Far that um, was amazing. Sean Lopez from Crosses was, was the guitar player for that band, Jonah Matranga. Um, who else? There's like a lot of great So I, I remember yeah. at the time where you you guys broke through with Infest, and we'll dive into Infest in a second. Sure. I remember hearing that you guys were the band, Pop Roach was really good friends with Alien Ant Farm. Was that another band that was around your area at that time? Yes, actually, we we got to know Alien Ant Farm through a um, one of our early like our earliest fans was this this dude named Jeff Thorin that uh, everyone called him Cadaver, and we we had a, a PO box that we you know if you sign up to our mailing list you can also send a correspondence through a PO box. And uh, one day I opened the mail and there's a couple of tapes you know like uh, this fan had sent us. Uh, he was from Orange County, Southern California, and he sent us these demo tapes, and one of them was Alien Ant Farm, and the other was Head P.E. And so, and then both of those tapes had contact numbers, and we, at that time, we were so hungry and and determined, and, like, our drive, like, our hustle game was just on point, like, we were on fire, right? So we're, like, as soon as I heard these tapes, I was, like, we need to, like, set up shows with these bands, like, we need to... We need to go down and then maybe we could trade shows with them in Northern California. And that's, that's kind of how we were doing it back in the day. We're swapping shows, you know, growing our fan bases, you know, cross-pollinating fan bases. And so I called the number and uh, I called both. Uh, and that began like, uh, I'm still friends with the guys in head and the guy, all the guys in ant farm, like to this day, but that that's how that happened. And we had gone down uh, after we had gotten our, uh, uh, our touring, you know, was set, setting up uh, the, the show swap kind of thing. We were down in, in Southern California playing. We were opening for Ant Farm. I forget where the venue was. Maybe it may have been like somewhere in the in uh, Orange County somewhere. And we were staying at Dryden's house after the show. We were, we were all crafting at Dryden's pad. And uh, we were up late. We may have had a few drinks in us, you know what I mean? And somewhere, uh, somewhere in our conversation, uh, we thought it would be a great idea to make a blood pact that that um, if the first the first one of our, our two bands to get signed would help the other band get signed as well. And we did the whole thing like we like did the Native America like you blood say, brothers like blood brothers and there's a song on Infest called Blood Brothers and that's what that that song's about. Wow, and and. Yeah. And you guys actually um, came through with that promise because both bands were signed to DreamWorks and both went on to sell millions of records. So that, yeah. that's pretty awesome. You guys weren't joking when you did the Blood Brothers Pact. It was serious. We didn't play. Dude, that means something, dude. You know what I mean? Like a Blood Brother Pact is some real shit. So we we took that to heart. So we're, we're going to dive into um, getting signed to DreamWorks in a second. But... You're talking about head PE. So I wouldn't be doing my job here uh, if I didn't get a quote from Wesley Gear, the guitar player for head PE, who uh, also played for Corn. So this is from Wesley. Uh, is Gear the last 
the pronounce correctly for the last name? West Gear, you are correct. West yep. Gear. And, yep. All right. So he says that we, Head PE, had the joy of all touring through Europe with Dave when Pop Roach was at the height of the last resort uh, worldwide domination, which meant we partied. I watched the entire world open for them everywhere we went. I also remember Dave passing out in a club when we went far away from the tour buses, and then we had to scramble to get his ass back to the buses. I remember we were always scared that he would he would overdose. He and I were the most likely to die dudes on tour. He has always been the sweetest, most down-to-earth guy around. And to get to watch this man conquer his demons and transform the way uh, transform the way that he has, it's been so heartwarming and mind-blowing. So that's Wesley Gear from Head PE and corn and now he's with the rock uh, rock for recovery foundation so that's uh from wesley oh man that is that's beautiful dude i've west another one of my life bros man and uh we share a special bond all of us you know what i mean so that's just i'm wow getting like a little i'm feeling it right now getting in the fields so, in the fields, yeah man it's uh dude i'm gonna have to call all those guys after I get done with this podcast be like you guys you guys are like that they, they didn't tell me that they that they said in those uh you know the crew that, showed up the, for you the crew they they showed up dude that's amazing all dude, yeah dude we me and West and the rest of the head you know Papa Roach and head camp like we ran amok in Europe for basically I think we toured for like two years with them we almost spent all of 2000 and 2001 like from the second half of 2000 all the way through 2001, we we basically toured with Head the most, I think, out of any other band. So so you guys released the independent album in 1997. Then you release a couple EPs. These EPs do well, and they catch the attention of Warner Music. So Warner is interested. Uh, they decide to pay for a five-song demo. And if they like what they hear on the demo, then maybe they would they would sign you guys for your major label debut. So you guys record and give back a demo that has the following five songs, last resort broken home between angels and insects, dead cell. And she loves me not. So these are the four singles from, uh, from infest and the first single from love, hate tragedy. You gave them literally a greatest hits album back. And they didn't sign you guys. Do you think that 25 years later that Warner Music, somebody is losing sleep at night? You know, uh, well, first of all, shout out to Jeffrey Weiss at Warner, who was the A&R that signed us to that deal. And during the course of that deal, um, he had left the company. And so we really didn't have a champion there, you know, after we. So when we went to go submit that demo, Jeffrey wasn't there, you know, so um Ultimately, they ended up passing, which, you know, is correct. But if if I'm not mistaken, right, at the same time they passed on us, they signed a little band called Hybrid Theory, which went on to become Lincoln Park. And I believe they signed Disturbed at the same time that they passed on us. So I think Warner, I think WMG is doing okay. I don't think anyone's losing a sleep that they passed on us. But we're grateful because where we ended up like DreamWorks record couldn't ask for a better label to be at. I mean, the, you know, the guy that signed up Ron Handler, he just, he saw the vision right away. He could see, he could see the playing field and knew that, um, 
that we were a bet worth taking and it, it paid off. You know what I mean? So shout out to Ron Handler too. Amazing. So you, you signed at DreamWorks in 2000, you released the major label debut album Infest. Uh, I've gone over already the four big singles. It, it peaks at number five, 4.2 million copies sold. Uh, it ended up being the 20th, 20th, highest selling album period in the u.s that year which is on there's like i don't know ten thousand albums released like it's unbelievable um how, how old were you when that album released i mean what no human being almost no human being will ever know what it's like to have an album that successful to have you know singles that successful and it all happened to you at a very young age so how old were you and can you put into words what your life was like during that insanity around 2000 dude i want to say when the album dropped i think i was 24 years old 24 maybe 20 yeah 24 i want to say and then um my birthday is in may so right around the album my birthday was right after the album had dropped and i remember going to, um, we had done a show the night of my birthday and everyone sang, you know, happy birthday to me on stage and stuff. And then we went out to a club afterwards. And when we were at the club, we got a phone call from our manager. So this is literally, my birthday is at the end of May. The album came out April 25th. And it's my birthday night, like a month later. And our manager called and said, your album just went gold. And we're like, what? Like, are you kidding? Like, what are you talking about? Hold my God, our manager was Brett Bear at the time. We're like, Brett, what do you, that's what, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Like just didn't know what to do with that information. You know what I mean? And then literally, I think two weeks later, it was platinum. And then it was double platinum. And then it was triple platinum. I mean, it was boom. Like I, I wasn't, I don't know. How to, I don't know how to process any of that. Like it, it almost like it didn't even seem real. Like that could even happen to our, our little garage band from Vacaville, you know? Yeah. So I was 15 when the album came out. And uh, so behind me, you can see in your honor, I have the album cover right here. So these are the uh, my 12 favorite albums from guests that I've had on the podcast. So uh, I, I had yours made in advance, so it was ready for this interview. And man, that when that album came out, it with the music video, with the single, everything that like that took over the world. Like this was like a phenomenon to the point where uh, on Thursday night, I, I brought my parents to a concert in Ottawa. So Big Sugar was playing a big platinum Canadian band here. And uh, on the drive, I said, Hey, I got the big Papa Roach interview on Saturday. I go, you, you definitely know some of their songs. So I, I play, these are like, my parents are pushing 70 and I play last resort. So just the, the acapella vocal starts like, no, we don't know this. Then the, the drums kick in. No, we don't know this. As soon as that iconic guitar riff came in, they go, Oh, we know this song and my 70 year old parents. So, uh, to show you how big that that was, um, at, at what point did you know that this album was something monstrously big? You mentioned that after, you know, after your birthday, after a month, it was gold, all that stuff. Was there something before that that told you that this was going to be massive? What, were there projections for album sales? Were there the single starting to pick up at radio? Was there a kind of something, a calm before the storm that gave you a hint that this was coming? 
the only thing that I can remember um, was, you know, and I think like looking back on it now and kind of and listening to some of the stories that I get told, like I guess there was a buzz around the industry or at least around Hollywood, you know, like when we were in the studio with Jay Baumgartner, like we were kind of like people were saying that we were kind of the, the, the golden boys of that time. Like we were like, kind of like, you know, the, the hot new, the hot new thing, uh, at least around Hollywood, you know, people were talking, you know what I mean? But that's just talk, you know, that's not any, you know, I mean, doesn't mean that's not sales lot. numbers, right? Yeah. It's not sales. There's nothing proven in that. You know what I mean? So, okay. Like whatever, whatever, but we weren't even aware of that. I didn't find that out till later. And then I think if there's anything that to me seemed like it was an indicator of anything was that um, when the album dropped our first week sales, we had the, we broke the record for the amount of record sales for a brand new signed, like newly signed artist, like, you know, uh, first time debut album, new sign, new signing. Uh, and then the, the previous record holder was Slipknot which uh, they sold 15,000 records on their, on the release of their debut record. Like the first week they sold 15,000 and we had doubled that. We sold 30,000 records and they're like, Oh shit, you guys just, this is like some real shit. Like you just broke split. I mean, but, uh, just like, cause you kind of put it in perspective, like even split, not wasn't back then. Like it wasn't, it was different times. So everyone was kind of coming up together. Right. But Slipknot would def had definitely proven themselves because their album came out a year before ours did. So they were on their way, but they weren't like the, the behemoth yet that they are today, right? Which is amazing to think about because it's a huge band, a great band. Um, but anyway, we, we, we shattered that record. We doubled it. We sold 30,000. And um, other than that, everything seemed like it was, I mean, you know, I don't know if, if there was conversations in the background that were happening like internally at the company or just in the industry itself. But to us, it just seemed like we were on the road playing shows night to night, club to club, city to city, and just doing it organically. That's what it felt like to us. You know what I mean? Um, except for every time we'd roll into a new town or the, you know, like on our second tour around the States, we noticed that like our first tour, there was maybe like five, 10 people, at, at a show, you know, depending on the city, like if we had never been there, there may have been like five or 10 people there, you know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, looking at you, St. Louis, you know, Missouri, you know what I mean? And then by the second time we came around, which is only a few months later, sold out show. Also looking at St. Louis, there's a club called Pop. I think we sold out Pop our second time playing in St. Louis. Amazing. And um, like, that's kind of how it felt. It just felt like things were happening organically, you know what I mean? But I definitely still was not ready for I wasn't ready for gold in a month and platinum in a month and a half and double platinum in two months and all of that. That's that's some some different level stuff. I don't I don't know why I still remember this uh, all these years later, but I remember in 2000 reading a review about someone that had, you know, a, a professional in the industry that was writing a review about that album in fest and it's always stuck with me i don't know why it's like the one review that's always stuck with me and this is what the headline said before you read before you read it it said once i've picked once i've picked my jaw up off the floor i'll finish telling you how great this album is that was the 
quote for Infest before uh, before reading the review. And I don't know why, but that to me, that was like the best review intro ever. So that's wild. I wish I had seen that interview uh, or seen that article back in the day, because I don't know if it's just me and my personality, but it seemed like I only read that the the reviews that were like trashing the album. I remember there was I forget which magazine in the UK, like our you know our album comes out there. They're like, Papa Roach has a band is like a barn door hitting a barn door. Like they were basically, they, I think they said that we were flogging. I forget what the the terminology was, but they were just like clown. They were clowning everything we did, and I was like, oh, my feelings are hurt. I'm so butt hurt. But, um, but yeah, dude, like that. Once I pick up my jaw off the floor, I'll tell you how great this record is. That's that's amazing. That's, that's great. That's a good one. Uh, another. I mag- wish I had tuned into more of those. Maybe it's better that I didn't tune into the positive reviews. Maybe it's better. We don't want the ego. All, to everything be too happened. Big, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was plenty of time for that happened as my career went on, which it did. Yeah. Yeah. There. Well, there's one magazine that did uh, that that did appreciate the album. So Kerrang. Put it on its list of the 21 greatest new metal albums of all time. Uh, I was curious, what are your thoughts on the labeling of new metal? It seems like everything after Corn for like a decade was labeled new metal. Uh, did you guys agree that you were new metal? Was that a real thing? Is that do you see that as a derogatory term? Like, wh- what are your thoughts on new metal? Because it seems like new metal isn't something that gets labeled now anymore. Right. It's definitely a genre of the time, right? It's those late 90s, early 2000. Corn, Limp Bizkit, uh, Disturbed, Tums, Papa Roach. Disturbed, yeah. Lincoln Park, you know, right? So all the, even like, you know, you want Stained. to talk about like Fold, you know, Stained, um, Deadlights, um, you know, you know, you know, like we all know, we all know the a crazy town, right? Crazy town. Yeah. Uh, so I think at the time, I, I think that uh, we kind of took it as a flight a little bit, you know, because we're like, we just didn't understand that, like, you know, people, society, like people, you know, like they like, they like to group things, like to put things in boxes, right? So like, that's, we're like, you know, we were so fiercely trying to be like our own thing that we're, like, you're not going to put us in a box with all everybody else. And now I kind of look back on it and I'm like, that's a cool box. I'll take that. You know, it's great. I think our t- attitudes toward that label have changed over the years. And I think the attitude of, so now that a lot of those fans who were kids at the time our record came out, now they're all moms and dad. And there's a bit of nostalgia around that, you know, around that genre and around those bands and around that term. I think there's a, a different perspective and new eyes that are, that are, you know, looking at it a different way. And so to some of the, the younger kids, who kind of um, have discovered that genre and are, are just now, you know, finding out about these bands, which I guess would be their version of classic rock, right? We're back to if classic rock. We're right. back to classic rock. Um, I think that when they, I think when they hear or see new metal, I don't think they see it as being derogatory, even though like, you know, we're all kind of, everyone I think in the genre, if I remember correctly, just like whether I read it in an interview or was talking to guys, and and girls who kitty right you know like remember remember kitty like they were in that female fronted seven duck seven duck dude a uh, human waste project was a do you remember them amy amy um no amy echo was the singer for them her satana anyway 
Uh, I, think, I think it's just a timestamp, just like the timestamp. A timestamp, and and new metal was a timestamp. So, yeah, people like to put things in genres. You know what I mean? Like, you know, freedom rock, heavy metal, classic rock. You know what I mean? Psychedelic rock, new metal. It's it's just it's just a, a label that you know you can kind of. It's a marker in history. Yeah, well, your your sound matured as the albums went on. So after the first couple albums, you guys weren't technically considered new metal anyways, you know? Yeah, that's true. Like when we went in, when I remember the band had made a, a conscious decision that, you know, like we're like, and it, looking back on it, I'm like, was it necessarily the correct decision? I mean, everything happens for a reason and everything happens as it should, but was it the best idea? Like, uh, I look at other bands who have maybe um, there's a if we had just kind of repeated the recipe like rent and repeat in Feth, you know, like there's some other bands who are very successful that kind of like they took the they took what worked on the first album and just basically did it again for the second rock album. And it worked great. You know what I mean? Like, you know, great for the great for the the record sales of pocketbooks. But us being the uh, the knuckleheads we were. We're like, no, dude, like, we just want to switch it up. Like, we're at that point, like, if you listen to our, our EEPs before we got signed, we had already started kind of kind of veering off the rap rock sound. Like, we were experimenting with other sounds. Like, Social Distortion was a, a big influence for, especially Kobe. He really loved Mike Ness and Social Distortion. And so uh, some of that, like, I guess, like, Southern Cali, like, or whatever, like, kind of punk rock. Like, we were doing, like, some more punk punk stuff, you know what I mean? That was less um, less rap influenced, and we we're just like, dude, let's just switch it up for the second record, Love Hate Tragedy. Like, we're just gonna switch up the sound. We only had one song that had rap on it, though. She loved me not, which was written for um, Infest, right? And um, and everything else, you know, everything like we kind of just switched up the whole the whole recipe. It's like if you went, it's like if, if someone like went to McDonald's and got a Big Mac and was like, ooh, I really like this Big Mac. That's awesome. You know, I'm going to go back and get another Big Mac. And then they went back the next day to get a Big Mac. And it was like a freaking chicken ranch bacon sandwich. And they called it a Big Mac. Like, we switched up the whole recipe. But that's what we wanted to do. And that, I looking back on it too, I, I credit the label because for better or worse, our label was supportive of us as artists and as a band, Right. No one was like, hey, you have to like do Infest part two. They were like, do whatever you want. You just like, you just won the lottery, dude. Like, do whatever you feel. You're artists. And that was the that was the culture at DreamWorks was that they were just supportive of artists. You know what I mean? They weren't all about, of course, they're a business. They want to make money, but their artists, like their support of like the artistic endeavor was above all else. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, love, hate, tragedy. We kind of took a dip a little bit. It wasn't as big and massive as Infest, but I think what that did was, looking back on the catalog now in the career, it opened up a door where, like, I think Tobin said in interviews or said it before, he said, the only thing thing, uh, consistent with our band is that we're always changing. And if you look at Papa Roach now, now that they're, like, what, uh, 10, 10 albums, 11 albums in, uh, maybe even 12. I, I can't even keep track of how many albums they put out now, but they're all different. They're all their own things. Sometimes they 
they revisit themes, you know, from, from older albums, or sometimes they're just like opening up new doors that, that we want to try this. We want to try dubstep now. Now we want to try this, that, and the other thing. But I think doing that early on in our career kind of opened that door. Like we didn't have to get, we didn't have to stay locked into one thing. You know what I mean? It was just, just make the, you know, the music that speaks to you personally as a band, you know? Yeah. I have a, I have a, a lot of questions and a lot of comments for love, hate tragedy. So uh, we'll, right, we'll, we'll get, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a couple minutes. I have a few okay. questions about last resort and there's some fan questions. So okay. can you share with our listeners how the song last resort came together? Do you remember the first time hearing that iconic guitar riff or the first time hearing those, those vocals that kick off the song? Like where, where does that song piece together to the song that it is today and then i have lots of questions about last resort after that as well okay i'll make i won't be as long-winded on answering this question but i remember the first time i heard jacoby's vocal for that song it was actually in a different song i could tell you that so imagine that and then the first time i heard the riff for last resort right that that like i know in an interview on vice i called it an arpeggio and then someone in the comment thread was like it's not a fucking arpeggio dude like i thought you were a musician i'm like Sorry, dude. I'm a drummer. What do you want? Like, just shoot me, please. But so the first time I heard that arpeggio, Mr. Whatever who you are, <laughs> the comment thread, da -da 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 -da. it was actually on the piano. Like Tobin had had written it on his mom's grand piano at, at, at his mom's house. And he played it for me. And, I was, and he, he the way he presented it was like, yeah, dude, it's kind of like this Lauren Hill Fuji's kind of a vibe. And he played it, and I was like, yeah, that's dope. You know what I mean? Dude, is there an acoustic like, yeah, version of this somewhere? A piano-based acoustic version? I think, do, 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 I think do, do, someone... Do. I think in a, there's a video of Tobin playing it on his piano at his at his home. Somewhere in the, in, in an... I think it's in this Vice mini-doc that they, that they put out last year. But then there's other... On YouTube, I know I've seen, like, people have taken that story now, and, like, they've... So they've now... Um, transcribed it like that to piano like i've seen some classical versions i know there's like a violin version like a string quartet version of last resort yeah so there's different there's different versions of that song out there but that's the way i heard it the first time with on piano and then when i heard it when i heard we gave it the riff to jerry and then he he learned it and put his jerryness on it and it's like oh uh, that's that's pretty sick we called the riff the noodle we're like, play the noodle, Jerry, play the noodle. <laughs> yeah, last resort. I, I, I think I think a big part of what makes that song awesome is your drums. So you have the drums in the intro and also on the chorus, it's like a forward drum playing. It's like down on the one, you know, and um, those to me, those help the song stand out and make it what it is. Do you remember coming up with your drum parts for that song after hearing the guitar riff? The noodle, the arpeggio, however you want to you want to call that guitar riff. Yeah, um, I remember at the time. I don't remember the exact moment I came up with those drum parts, but I remember at the time the general philosophy in our camp was some advice from our manager, our two managers, Brett, uh, Brett and Gary, and um, they would say. Just write hits. That was their big, we're like, Brett, like, what are we doing? And he's like, I don't know. Like, we, we got the demo deal for Warner Brothers. 
we're like, what do we do? Like, like, we don't like, this is big and scary and new to us. We don't know what to do. And Brett's like, you know, just write hits. It's cool. And so like, we just like took that and internalized that, that one statement. And I'm like, you know, I remember thinking like, and then the other thing was like arena rock. Right. So it's like simple drum parts. Like I've never been a, 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 you know, very technical or very like, I don't subdivide measures. For me, it's all about just placing single notes where, where, you know, single notes and then fills for embellishment, but it's just putting the beat where I feel it needs to be. Like my playing, and I've gotten a lot of compliments on my playing because uh, I've heard it from multiple singers. They're like, dude, you have, Dave, you have great feel. Like if I think there's anything I bring to the table as a drummer, it's feel. They're like, uh, my friend Lucas Rossi, who I've made a lot of music with, he's like, dude, playing with you is like, sitting in like your favorite comfy sofa because you never have to worry about where the support's coming. Like you're just fully supported. You know what I mean? And that's the way he sees my playing. And I'm like, that's a pretty good analogy. So that for me, that's the drum part. That's like the drum parts all over that record. It's like, where can I put the beats in the right place to be the glue that holds the music, like the guitar, bass and vocals together. I listen, I don't just listen to the, the rhythm and just the guitar or just the bass, even though I do lock in with the bass and there is a lot of lock in with the guitar, but I listen to the vocals as well. Like, and even like, I just did a song the other day for a friend of mine out in Texas, my friend Billy Kurd out in Texas. And he's like, dude, play drums on the song for me. He sends me everything, the song, uh, everything but the drums, right? And like, it's just, it's that, that's just the way my mind works. I'm listening to like, I listen to what, what the song wants and how, what the vocal needs. And, and I just try and support that. I just try and support the song the best I can. So that's well, the story. Last resort on Spotify alone <laughs> has 852 million streams. And in the music video on YouTube uh, has 192 million views. So this is, there's a, that's a billion listens to that song just on the two platforms. Maybe there's, I don't know, half a billion on Apple. Who knows? So at least a billion. Why do you think people love Last Resort so much? I know why I love it. Why do you think that song just is this global phenomenon? So what you're telling me is that like me uh, putting my phone on repeat on Spotify, it, it worked? Yes. Infinite yes. repeat. I, dude, yeah. I knew it would. I knew, yeah, I had, I had my phone on Spotify on infinite repeat. Got those streams up, baby. A cool. billion, baby. Knew, One billion. I, I knew I could do it. I knew I did it. Awesome. Dude, you know, I don't know, man. I that's like, you know, when you start throwing numbers at me, I could I could hear it and I I could take in the information, but processing that, like there's just, you know, at a certain point, it's like I I don't I, you know, I don't know what to do with that information. You know what I mean? It's it's beautiful, it's great, it's great news, and I'm grateful. Absolutely, absolutely grateful. But um, other than that, you know, it's, um, you know, might as well be exist in some other world. That's just not, you know, yeah. I don't when know you, what to do with that. When you think <laughs> of a big number, you think, okay, an arena is 20,000 sure. people. So you can visualize 20,000. You're like, wow, that's an incredible amount of people. And now yeah. from 20,000, how are you supposed to visualize a billion? Like it doesn't. We, we cannot compute the success of that song, essentially. No, I think um, there's, I don't know if you heard like this before they said, but if a, if a dollar 
is one second, right? A million dollars would be like 13 hours and or 11 hours and a billion dollars would be like 31 years, right? So like just use that, you know, that kind of math. It's insane, insane. Yeah, so I, I'm i gonna have fun with this, this next question because uh, in 81 interviews, I always ask, hey, if Guitar Hero came along and requested just one song from your band, what song do you provide to the video game? And this is the first time in 81 interviews that my guest, their song is actually in uh, in Guitar Hero. So Last Resort was in Guitar Hero 5. So uh, I, 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 I don't have to ask what song would would you submit because you actually had a song in there. So what was that experience like? And then the other question, this is a fan question also about video games. This is from Michel Perron. Uh, he says, how does it feel to have your song Blood Brothers, we, we mentioned that, uh, on the greatest video game soundtrack ever, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2? So two video game questions for our video game nerd listeners here. Oh, dude, Michelle, thanks for that question and thank you for the kind words. Uh, yeah, dude, Tony Hawk Pro Skater, I played that game when it came out and it was, you know, like, on, I think, was it PS2 when that came so out? So the original one was PS1 and then... Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 is PS2, and they were both Two, like right? groundbreaking games. Yeah. Groundbreaking. Dude, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I remember at that time um, we had done the Warp Tour, and it was kind of, it was cool because it kind of brought me back to like my childhood, you know, like, my love of skateboarding. And then, you know, Tony Hawk, and just to have that be a part of that game. And I believe it's one of the early, it's like one of the, the earlier songs that you can, that open, that unlocks as you play the game. It's like, you don't have to like, I know certain songs you have to reach higher levels to unlock them. Like ours is, ours is I'm, right I'm, up front. I remember hearing that song in the game when I played it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, it's awesome. It's awesome. And then Guitar Hero. I've played some Guitar Hero um, along the way. I have. I never got a chance to play our song in Guitar Hero, though. So I don't know what that would feel like. But I think it would be awesome. I think, it, you know. I it's wonder what it would feel rap. like for your guitarist who actually wrote that riff, you know? Oh, hilarious. Hilarious. It'd be cool to see I him actually, actually play it on like expert. You know, he like he can right. play it in real life, but can't quite play it in the game. That would be pretty you funny. Know, I always I always think of that, like, you know, like, or you know, they have the what's the game that has the the whole the full setup where you have rock like, the band. drums? Rock band, right? So imagine like playing my own song on rock band or something like that and then it failing because hilarious but yeah i don't know man uh that's that's great it's it's so cool for you know something that we created something that i helped create to kind of like that it's found its way like into the fabric of culture you know of pop culture or whatever like it's kind of it's kind of just found its way into like little different nooks and crannies you know like video games and movies and memes you know last resort is a meme now which is at first like i didn't know how to take it and i think you know we had some conversation like me and the band were like you know i think the band didn't really understand like what do you mean it's a, like why did it mean and i'm like no you don't understand like i know it seems like i know it seems bad but really it's good like trust me it's gonna be awesome and they're like okay i'm like do you just let go and like let it let it roll and that's the approach we've taken with it and some of these memes are amazing. I think Snoop Dogg posted a meme of uh like Snoop Dogg has memed it. 
there's different variations of like, you know, cut my pie into pizza, cut my pizza into, cut my pie into pizza. This is my lab, my plastic fork or something like that. It's fucking great. And I think the band even now has merch around some of the memes from the band. You know, I have a blanket at my house that was like a, uh, the guy gave it to me for Christmas or for my birthday this year. And it's a custom made collaboration with this company that makes um, like food related products. And so it's like a charcuterie, the stuff you'd see on a charcuterie board, like grapes and cheese and bread. And it, it, and it's embroidered into this blanket. It says, cut my life into pieces. My, you know, cut my life into pieces. I should go get it. I wish, dude, I wish I, wish I would have thought to bring it. I could show it to you on screen. It's pretty awesome. That's all good. I saw uh, the band Papa Roach themselves posted a meme the other day. It's a video of, it says, how to piss off your Nigerian parents. And it's this guy that puts in piercings and then he runs into the room and starts acapella screaming, cut my life into peace. He starts singing the song and you see the the parents just like cringing. Uh, so anyways, and the band shared it themselves. Awesome. So they're definitely in on it. So I, I have one final question about Infest. Uh, sure. So that album, you guys got two Grammy nominations. So Best New Artist and uh, for the music video, uh, this was for Broken Home. Man, that is the the highest level of honor that you can get as a musician. That's like the most esteemed nomination period. You got not one, but two for the same album. Uh, what do those nominations mean to you, if, if anything? Well, uh, I have them on my wall. I don't know if you can see that right here, one and two. And then we didn't win the award, but we got the we got a nominate for being nominated. You get a medal. So I framed those. They're hanging on on the wall of my office. And so I think you know at the time it was once again like we were young and punk rock, and you know we're so uh, we're so contrarian to everything. I think at that time they were like we you know I think Kobe had said like. Oh, like we got nominated for a Grammy. That's, you know, who'll be impressed? My Grammy, like my grandma. And like, you know, we kind of were, we, I think at the time, it's not that we, it's not that we didn't care, but we were trying to take everything with a grain of salt because it just didn't seem real. You know what I mean? And we didn't know how to process it. So we just kind of like blink when it, you know, if you look at like comparatively like blink 182, how like the, everything is a joke. You know what I mean? Like, in our own little way, we were like kind of make, making everything, making, taking the piss out of everything, you know, but looking back, I mean, yeah, that's, it's one of my, one of the moments I can, you know, it's one of my trophies now, you know, it's cool. It's cool. And then all these, all these things back there, you can see them back. Yeah. It's part of my life. It's part of my journey. So I like to acknowledge it. There was a time when I didn't have these things hanging up, you know, I had like in, in a garage and storage, you know what I mean? And, and uh, it's like, I don't need those things up, you know, whatever. And then um, one day I'm like, you know what? I'm going to throw them on the wall. I like the way they look. Pretty cool. So we we're going to move on to the follow up to Infest. So in 2002, you guys re released Love, Hate, Tragedy. You had talked a little bit about the album a few minutes ago. Uh, so we have about 30 minutes left and I have page after page of questions for, oh, each let's of, keep going. Each, for each of the next three albums. So I'll have to just cherry pick a few questions for each album. Okay, let's yeah. do that. And I'll try and answer more concisely. I know I've been doing a horrible job. So far. No, you're giving I'll us the goods. This. this is a yeah. deep dive, man. You're yeah. doing a All deep right. dive. Yeah, it's perfect. So uh, Love, Hate, Tragedy comes out. 
two singles, She Loves Me Not and Time and Time Again. Uh, the album goes gold. Debuts at number two. So this is like the highest charting album. And even though you you were saying, you know, it wasn't quite as successful as Infest, it still went on to sell like three million copies globally. Like it, for any other band, that's like the biggest album of their career by far. Um, after the multi-platinum success of Infest, did you guys feel a ton of pressure uh, when you went in to make this follow-up? Yeah, I think that's the thing. I, I think I mentioned it before is that um, if there was any pressure, it wasn't being placed on us from the label or our management. You know what I mean? It was, they kind of just said like, you know, it's your career, like do what you want, like do what makes you creatively happy and filled, right? Um, so if, if there was any pressure, it was kind of on our own shoulders. We like, you know what I mean? And I think our answer to that was just like sloughing it off and saying, all right, new metal, rap metal, we did that cool story. Like we're going to do something else. And that, that love, hate tragedy was our answer to being pigeonholed in the rap metal because that was important to us at this time. And it's funny, like Tobin, uh, when he says, when he recounts like the, the making of that record, he's like, we had just basically like won the Super Bowl of like new, you know, the new bands, right? Biggest, biggest moment in history. We were successful. We're like rock stars now. And we were fucking miserable. You know what I mean? And there, and that's the sentiment that we brought into writing Love, Hate, Tragedy. Because a lot of those songs are all about being on the road, being away from home, being depressed, fighting with your loved one because because you're away from, from, you know, you're apart for so long and on the road. And it's kind of, a, I think it's a, it's a story that um, it's kind of recounted, you know, a lot, of, a lot of, a lot of bands, you know, make those same records. Like you have your first record and then the second record being about, about being sad because, because you're on the road all the time. You know what I mean? That's, that's love, hate, tragedy in a nutshell. And if the song She Loves Me Not is good enough to be the first single off that album. Why wasn't it included on Infest? You know, I, it was um, because, you know, even though we had written it in, in, in those sessions, right? When we were, you know, like the whole game plan for Infest was like, all right, let's, uh, you know, the album, we wanted the album to be cohesive, right? And so if you kind of look at She Loves Me Not as a song, it's kind of the outlier among that group of songs. Like, uh, it's got melody. And so we kind of felt like we had that, we had the melodic part of that, of Infest covered with songs like Binge and and um, Never Enough, right? That's about as melodic as we wanted to get. So if we had stuck She Loves Me Not in there, and, it, uh, it, and then also She Loves Me Not a little bit more funky and up-tempo, right? Yeah. And so we just felt like it didn't, it just, it was right there. It was like right on the cusp of fitting in, but it just didn't make the cut. Mm -hmm. But we loved the song. So we saved it for the next record. So, so yeah, sonically, Love, Hate, Tragedy is very different than Infest. Um, so if I can make a comparison, stick with me. Um, you were talking about loving grunge and Nirvana. Um, if, if Infest was... Comparing with Nirvana, if it was never mind, then your next album, Love Hate Tragedy, is like in utero, where it it's way more raw, it's less polished. Your 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 drums, um, 
they're so raw. Like the snare on life is a bullet is, is just this, this powerful cutting snare. Um, was that a conscious choice to, you know, maybe looking at Infest and saying, it's just, it's so polished. Like it sounds sonically perfect. Let's go like very raw. And maybe that's like a love letter to all the bands you grew up with that were a lot more, more raw. I don't know if any of that is making sense, but that's when I, when I listen to love, hate tragedy, I'm hearing a, a shift sonically from uh, infest. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Although it's more melodic, it is more raw. And we kind of took a more uh, old school approach. Like the producer that we hired to do that record is Brendan O'Brien, who he did, Stone Temple Pilots first record he did most of the Rage Against I think most if not all the Rage Against the Machine records did some Pearl Jam records he was the engineer on Blood Sugar Sex Magic the Chili Peppers album so he's a he like we knew the name we knew his work and we cherry picked him to do the second the second record like on purpose because we knew he would take us in the direction we wanted to go and he's heavily inspired from like the older recording techniques of like using real tape and like um you know less uh computer processing like i remember when we when we went into the studio like brendan was like when he came to talk to me about doing my drum tracks and he's like you know dave like he's like i know because at that time pro tools had made his entry into the industry and uh you know um infest is, is pro it's not it's funny because when i look at infest now and we thought like, oh my God, it's like Pro Tools to death. And you look at it now, it's like, that ain't nothing, baby. Like, if you knew how records are made now, it's like, why does it, anyone even play an instrument anymore? I, don't, I have no idea. It's like, you know, everything's just like, plug it in the computer and it's all in the box now. But so even though we felt like Infest had a ton of Pro Tools on it, we go back and listen to it now and it sounds so raw, right? But with Love, Hate, Tragedy, it's even more raw because... The only thing we used Pro Tools for was um, we recorded everything to tape and then dumped it into Pro Tools. And we didn't do any drum editing. So Brendan, when he came to talk to me about my drum tracks, he goes, listen, man, he's like, I'm not going to sit here and quantize all your beats. And I'm not going to like replace all the sounds with different sounds. He's like, if you want a certain sound out of your snare and your drum, we have to tune them that way in the studio. You have to play it. It's like he thought, if you're not happy with the way it sounded and the way you played it, he's like, play it again. You know what I mean? He's like, I'm not going to see. So the most I will do is I'll take one half of one take and maybe another half of another take and put them together. So that's all I'm doing for you. He's like, we're not, I was like, I'm not going to like, you know, sit here and doctor up all your drums. So if you want it to sound uh, how you want it to sound, you're going to have to play it that way. That's the old school approach. And I'm like, okay. And like, I did my best to rise to that challenge. And so when you hear the record, it's, it's all everything on that record. I, I like, I like to let the the fans know, or the, the listeners know that like everything on that record was, it's all like, you know, like one, you know, huge chunks, like one takes, um, not a, you know, not a whole lot of, uh, there's not a lot of processing on that record at all at all it's very very old school approach to recording so i have some kind words sent here from renee matta so this is the singer for uh, reach nyc a music executive helped get some pretty big bands signed including maroon five lovely the band and albert hammond jr so these are some words from renee uh 
Renee says, I remember the day I met Dave Buckner. Dave Buckner. It was April 15th, 2000, very specific, at CBGB's in New York City. We've been friends and brothers since then. Dave Buckner was a vital part of Papa Roach's success and vision. His drive was ferocious, it's which is comparable to his friendship. He's loyal, dependable, unwavering. We've been through ups and downs, through the darkness and the light. He will be a brother until the day I die, from Renee. Renee's my boy, dude. That's my dude. That's my guy, my mamba. That's dude. Yeah, and he's right. Like we uh our band. I'm trying to remember if Papa Roach, if his band Reach opened for Papa Roach at CBGB's on April 15th, or if we opened for his band. I can't remember, but it was one of those two. But that's when we first met Renee. Was uh we had the opportunity to play our one and only time ever playing CBGB's legendary venue, right? And we had we had we had one shot at playing there before they closed with a close up shot, but I put that on my bucket list. And uh, Renee, once again, another lifer. He's he's a great dude, great dude. And and CBGBs that's famous for like the Ramones, right? Dude, I think yeah, I think even like like early Ramones, early rock and I think like Ramones, like I think even like Talking Heads and a lot of that like that early early punk rock came out of there. That New York stuff, yeah. So in in two thousand four, you guys released "Getting Away with Murder." So three singles: "Getting Away with Murder," "Scars," and "Take Me." This is a big is a big hit. Goes platinum. Um, I want to I want to talk about the song "Scars." So "Scars" is another departure sonically. Uh, was there? It was the band's biggest hit in the U.S. Uh, was there any fear releasing a song that wasn't quite as heavy and had, had a, a lot of melody to it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We were scared shitless of that song. <laughs> uh, we were so apprehensive about putting a song that melodic uh, out into the world that the original bridge to that song had like a, a a hardcore breakdown for whatever reason. And then at the end of the day, like you know, like the uh, you know, like uh, at the fourth down, you know, like make, making the demo of that record, I was like, this this album because. I was I was in charge of recording the demos so we recorded them on, on my Pro Tools um, at my house in uh, in Sacramento, and we had this hardcore breakdown in the middle of Scars, and I'm like, let's pull this out, and I put in that that bridge that what we know of as the bridge today, where it kind of like there's like these one hits like where Kobe's like screaming, "Go next, your style," right that that part. And then I, I kind of constructed that part in Pro Tools and I'm like, okay, guys, what about this? And they're like, and I remember like when we first heard, you know, just like the song in total, like it was, it, it was scary how poppy, right? That song was for us. Like we've always written melodic, catchy songs. I, I think like, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say like, like, I, I don't know if I've ever heard a Papa Roach song uh, with me or after me that isn't catchy like you know that's pretty much that that's how that camp rolls you know what I mean like right catchy music um but that one that one was it was we knew that if, if we put that out there we're taking a, a, a step but that song was one of those songs like some songs are they feel like you're building something and then other songs feel like you're discovering something like you're almost like you're you're digging 
And that song, like, just basically, like, it forced its way. Like, it's, I don't even really know how, it, it was just, like, some kiss met, I think they call it, like, just meant to be shit. Where, like, that's all, Jerry brought that one in. It was like a session. gift. It was like a gift. It was like, a gift. That, that you're really downloading was. from infinite intelligence or the source or God. It just came to you. You were, it was, it was out there somewhere in the ether. And, and you guys were the medium in which it presented itself, essentially. Yeah, that's kind of my general philosophy for all of music creation. You know what I mean? I feel like if I'm doing my job as a musician, it's it's being a conduit for that, bringing whatever exists in the invisible, bringing it into this reality. But that song, when it came, when it presented itself to us, we we knew like that was so last resort. I didn't necessarily know it was going to be a hit when we wrote it. That song, I knew it was going to be a hit. I knew yeah. it. I knew that, it from that the chorus, that chorus, yeah. that big pop, undeniable chorus with harmonies. Yeah, I, I have a story about Scars that I think you'll enjoy. So uh, I, I love Scars. Like that's one of my most ever played songs. My band used to cover that song at every show. And we played it so much that this actually happened. Uh, I had a I had a girl, a long, long term girlfriend at the time who calls me hysterical like couldn't be happier and goes oh my god your song's playing on the radio so she worked uh she worked retail and she goes your song's on the radio and she holds it up and it was scars and we had been playing scars so much that she thought we were getting radio play so that's a that's a little uh, a little story yeah. about scars and us playing that so that's a, and of course you took the credit right you're like thanks babe oh yeah yeah that's one yeah, of her best I'm songs still, yeah, yeah 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 dude that's great dude that's an awesome story I love that I love that. Uh, so let's let's move on to uh, the Paramore Sessions in 2006. So this is uh, your last album with the band. Uh, four singles, To Be Loved, Forever, Time Is Running Out, and Reckless. Uh, the album is named in reference to the Paramore Mansion. So you guys recorded the album there? Is there anything you can share about that location while recording? Yeah, we did. We recorded it at the Paramore in LA. And a couple of things I can tell you is that it's the it's elevation. It's on sits on top of a hill in the middle of uh, like the east side of LA, like East Hollywood. It's in the neighborhood of where I was born, right? So the hospital I was born at, literally right down the street from the Paramore. I was born at Queen of Angels Hospital in East Hollywood, and so going back there to record kind of felt like I was able to kind of like do some archaeology into to my own life with that because I would pass by the hospital I was born at like every day I would see our window it sits on top at the highest point within inside LA city limits it was built by an heiress named uh Daisy I think I want to say Daisy is it Canfield Daisy Canfield uh Danziger who was married to an actor and the whole the story of that place that like if you google that place it's it's got a long and like very uh storied past you know what i mean like it's been it's been a uh a, a, a reform i want to say a reform school for for wayward kids it's been a uh the nuns uh there's catholic uh it's been a, like a nunnery like a home for nuns catholic church it's been um you know its current owner dana who owns it now she owned it when we recorded there she rented it out for events and and for it's like an artist kind of sanctuary. So there's been a ton of artists who who've recorded albums there. 
while we were there recording and writing that we wrote and recorded the song there and then did overdubs at Howard Benson studio in, in, uh, in the Valley. But the, the bulk of the album was recorded there in the house. Um, while we were there, Mars Volta was there working on stuff, right? Chino from the Deftones was writing uh, Saturday Night Wrist there. He was living in one of the auxiliary houses. So, like, we'd all just be, like, seeing each other, you know, like, milling around. And we'd have uh, dinners and barbecues and things. Sometimes we'd invite the guys over and, you know, come over, like, just come over. Like, we're cooking carne asada tonight, you know, like, let's hang out, whatever. There was a few of those nights there. Um the place is haunted as fuck. I'll tell you that. Haunted. I've I've, I've heard up. I've heard stories and the uh, to give our listeners kind of a visual of of this mansion, uh, at one point it was listed for sale for like forty million dollars. So you're thinking of a man a normal mansion. This is a forty million dollar mansion. So wild. It's pretty crazy, man. And and the, the crazy thing about it is, I think because it's almost it's a historical landmark. Um. Uh, it's it's got so so much personality and the, yeah it's, it's an expensive property I think Katy Perry tried to buy it uh, after like I forget like the, I ran into Dana a few a couple years ago and she was telling me she's like I'm in a legal battle right now with Katy Perry she's trying to buy the Paramore or something like that like so anyway different story but um it, it's it's an amazing place the vibes in that place according to uh, Dana she said that it was it was designed by Masonic architect and it sits on top of a uh, ley line, if you know what those are. Like, so ley line are like electromagnetic, etheric grid lines that run across Earth, right? So, if you get into some, some more esoteric studies, you'll learn about what ley lines are. And it sits right on top of the intersection of, I want to say, at least two, maybe more ley lines sit around, and the house is sitting on top of that. And so the energy level in that place, you want to talk about being a conduit, like conducting energy. I mean, like, dude, it was it was game on from the time we walked on that property. And the weird thing is, as soon as you walk in the gate, like our cell phones wouldn't work. And uh, we're like, how come our cell phones don't work? They only work when we go outside the gate. She's like, that's just like, I think Dana uh, ascribed it to the the spirits right on the property like they wouldn't let this cell phone work so one night i was trying to make a call i think i was trying to call my parents and i'm inside my room in in the in the place and the i have no bars and i literally said out loud i'm like could you please just let me call my parents i'm trying to call my mom and dad please let's just let me make this one call and my phone fired up and i was able to complete the call but i had to like ask the spirit to yeah. let me call out dude it's it's wild, dude. So there, there's a lot of there's a lot of energy on that record in particular. And if and if I could tell share a story with you that I, I don't think I've ever said it in a public interview ever before. Uh, I did a lot of uh, the writing, uh, lyrical writing on that record. I contributed a lot to the lyrics and the the overall tone and the themes of the songs. Uh, many of the songs. And Kobe will tell you this too. Um, two of us in the camp were like, to Jacoby was sober, but Tobin and I were both going through dark periods in our life. I was the darkest, right? It, it was, I was in like, someone called my rock bottom at that point in my life while I was recording that record, writing that record. 
And so many of the songs are basically, uh, if not directly, like it, through channeled energy, like they're telling my story through that, that period of my life. And the original sequence of the record, which it lives as a playlist on my Spotify channel, I sequenced the album to be a goodbye letter because I knew it was the last letter. It was the last album that I was going to make with the band. Whether or not I left the band or I passed away, I knew it was the last record I would make with the band. And so I sequenced the album that way. And if you listen to the words of the songs in that order, they tell my story. Wow. And that's the first time I've ever said that in an interview. So there you go. Man, that uh, that album must have a special place in your heart. Then it does. It's probably it's it, it is the album that to me, you know, even though I was there for all of them and I contribute to all of them and I put my heart and soul in it, that one is the closest to my heart out of all out of all the records I did with that band. I in preparation for this interview, I I listened to the entire. Uh, Papa Roach discography several times with some good headphones. And I was, I was really impressed with that album, the Paramore Sessions. And man, To Be Loved is such a powerful opener to the album. And I, I want to ask you about the snare on that song. Like that is the most badass snare sound. Uh, is there anything special going on there? How, how, how do you get that sound? Is it how hard you're hitting? Is it a certain snare? Is it the mic? Is it mixing? Give me some insider info on how you get that monstrous uh, sound for that song. Sure. Um, okay. So which, when you talk about the snare sound, is it the snare sound from the intro or so the, the, the intro the body of the song? The intro. So the, the intro where it's basically just the snare is going is. All right. Yeah, it's like it's like driving, like it's it's the riff and the snare. Just it's this crazy snap. Um, I gotta I gotta know more. I don't know, man. That's that stood out. Well, that okay. So even though that 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 album is so that album to me, like when I went into making that record and and that my my thought process for that album was like we were making it in Hollywood, and I said. My thought, my thought process for that record, my creative intention was that, that I want this to be like our dirty rock and roll sunset strip record, right? If that makes sense, does that, you know what I mean? So like Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, Molly Crew, Girls, Girls, Girls. To me, that's what that record was going to be, right? And then also this goodbye letter, but it was going to be like this, like there's a lyric in, in, in the song, uh, in one of the songs that said, uh, uh, reaching for the stars, but laying in the gutter, right? That that basically encapsulates that that album for me. So the the record has a lot of modern day production on it, even though it doesn't sound like it. There's not a lot that like overtly sounds like it's like Pro Tools to shit. There's there's some keys in it. Howard Benson, our producer, that he that was our second record with Howard. He's a wizard at bringing in like uh, keypads. And hit the way he records the drums, he records live drums, but then layers, samples on top. There's like, for every song, there's probably at least three or four different drum samples on top of each hit for every drum, right? So that's just, but even though you can't really tell in the, in the, in the mix, it just sounds like a nice big fat drum sound. 
that's the way Howard that's the way we recorded that album with Howard. But like I said, the bulk of the the main tracking was done in the house with these big open rooms. And so like there's like this big like reverby room echo sound. And you can really it really comes through on the recording, even though there's a lot of samples, you know, underneath it. You could really hear like all these different things. But funny thing about To Be Loved, and I've also never said this on the interview, the intro to that song where it comes in with the drum, the driving drum beat. We wrote that we had the, the song originally just started. Go, there was no intro to it. That song, that part was constructed and written after we had already packed up all the gear after recording the drums, right? So that whole intro isn't even me playing. It's a drum loop. So I should be giving credit to like a uh, AI drum machine somewhere. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like BFD or Slate drums or something, but it's a drum loop. I, I don't It might even been like one of the guys in the studio created it, but that whole first section before the main body of the song starts isn't even me playing on that. It's It was written after the fact. So there you go. You, the record you, business, baby, making magic. Yeah, t talking about Howard Benson and and his layering of drums and and using keys and pads, you hear a lot of that with his work with Three Days Grace. Mm -hmm. For yeah. sure. Yeah, there, there's definitely something about, and it's the reason why we hired, we made two records with Howard is uh, there's like Howard got his start in like I think he started like in aerospace. You know, like he's like he's a rocket scientist, right? Literally. So and. Uh, He's like a mad genius. And like you, when you hear a Howard Benson record, you know it's a Howard Benson record, right? So he's done like My Chem, Three Days Grace, um, uh, POD, you know what I mean? And there's a certain flavor to the records he makes that just, it's purely Howard. And, uh, and that was at that time, that was the right choice for the records we wanted to make. You know, he was the right guy. So. I have I have one question about the song Forever, and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll move past this this album. Uh, so I, I love that song Forever. Um, mm -hmm. You're you're talking about the the atmosphere of you know being at the mansion and the big open rooms and all that stuff. Um, man, the atmosphere with the 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 bass and drums on that song, and then the vocals. There's like nice vocals on the guitar. And not the vocal, sorry, the reverb on the vocals and the guitar. It, it just in the verse and in the intro, there's just this amazing sound. And my question is, is the song Forever, is that the best ever recorded vocal performance from Jacoby? Man, I don't know, but I might have a hard time arguing that point. Yeah, it's it's like those deep. clean verses, yeah. it's yeah. like the tone, the delivery. Every, everything it it's yes. it stands up there I'm, I'm thinking about like chris cornell on some of the audio slave songs that have kind of that same atmospheric verse where it's like his vocals are holding everything down and it's when i when i hear him sing that verse it's up there with the best rock singers i've ever heard uh recorded so i, I don't know I, if i'm giving I, a compliment or, I, or if i'm asking a question but Dude, I'll take it either way, man. It's and I, I I see what you're saying. I think even in amongst the body of work of Papa Roach, I mean, like that song has, to my knowledge, I think it's if it's not the first time we did it, but like there's so much space 
Like there's nothing, it's like, there's nothing holding that song together. It's drums. It's like these like Native American Indians sounding like that's the way I, I wrote that part was to sound like, uh, you know, like a, you ever been to a, like an Indian powwow and you hear the, like the drums, you know, like when they have like the group of uh, uh, the guys around the, the one drum and they're like doing the pounding and singing. That's the way I wrote that part was to kind of emulate that. So it's just me and then Tobin holding down like the, the, the rhythm, right? And then Jerry with that etheric thing. But the main thing that carries that whole part is so there's so much space in it that you can't help but key into what Jacoby's singing. And that's intentional, right? And even like with the way Howard produces the vocals, very compressed. You hear every breath, every like little lip movement and all the spit swirling around like in the mouth. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a really compressed where you hear every little nuance of the vocal. And that's the first time that I can ever remember us doing something like that. So um, thank you for the compliment. And that's kind of my version of the story of, of what that what that is, that part. So I have our final fan question and then a final comment sent in. The question is sent in from a band in the Ukraine who's gone through a lot in the last few months. The band is called Cardinal Birds. And this is their question. Do you still hang out with the other members of Papa Roach? And if not, which member do you miss the most? Dude, matter of fact, I do. I do hang out with the guys. They were just at my house. I uh, live in Boise, Idaho now. And over summer, they were they came through on tour. The, the Rockzilla tour came through Boise. And we had a big barbecue at my house. You know, we swam in the pool. We ate carne asada. You know, everyone was having a great time. And uh, it wasn't even their day off. Like, they, they, like, took time out of their day to come over to the crib, have a hang, and then left my house and went and played a show. And it was, it was just, it was a, for me, just that it was just, it's one of those special days that um, I don't get to see him that often anymore because of everyone lives in different parts of the country now. And uh, I think even Jerry, like, you know, like Tobin lives in Austin, Jerry's in like Nashville, uh, Tony, and even like Jacoby and Tony live at different parts of, they live, both live in Northern California, but Tony lives up in the mountains and, you know, yeah, I, I mean, just long story short, I don't get to see him as often as I would like, you know, definitely just because also like we're all the older you get, like friendships are different. You know, an adult friendship is like, yeah, dude, we should hang out. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And then you never do, you know what I mean? Because everyone has families and kids and jobs and, and all that. It's like we kind of know how it goes. But to have that day at my house this summer was great. It was it. it it brought joy to my heart, dude. And, uh, uh, you know, yeah. So my relationship with the guys is, is strong and, and yeah, man, we're good like that. So the, the final quote sent in here is a funny story actually. Uh, so this is sent in from AC Slade from dope murder dolls and the misfits. Uh, AC says, this is maybe my favorite quote he says, I'll never forget the murder dolls touring with Papa Roach. First day of the tour, Jacoby is hanging out and says, guys, I'm sober now. So no partying for me. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll talk to him at some point. Maybe we can hit some meetings together. The next day, second day of the tour, our dressing room door opens. It's Jacoby with a bottle of vodka, face bright red and screams, Johnny Vodka's back, LOL. That's the story from AC Slade. Yes. 
Dude, that tour with the Murder Dolls. Uh, so if, if anyone who's unfamiliar with the Murder Dolls, it was like AC and Joey from Slipknot, Wednesday 13. Uh, the bass player was this dude, Eric, and drummer was uh, this guy, Ben, that everyone called Ghoul. But they're like this like campy, like uh, horror rock. They're not really horror, but they're kind of like in that vein, uh, like punk rock. Like if the Ramones like and the Misfits had a baby with the Cramps and... Yeah, dude, it's that stuff, dude. And it was just fucking fun as all hell. And what a tour. We had fun on that tour. That was that was an amazing time. And uh, sadly, we lost Joey, right? We lost Joey and, and Ben, the drummer from Murder Dolls, has also passed away. So, um, But dude, AC, another one of my boys. Great friend to me. Great, great guy. Just, just love that dude to death. Part of my crew, you know what I mean? Yeah, love you, AC. So, so every interview, I ask my guests if they can provide a question to the podcast that I'm going to ask the next guest. So, without knowing who the next guest is, if they're male or female or age or profession, they just provide a question, and you can have fun with it. And then I'll ask the next guest. It's like a chain that goes through the entire podcast. And sure. my last guest. So, this question comes to you from Steve Malella, who's been the Finger 11 drummer for the last 10 years since uh, our, our friend Rich Beto. And without knowing that you were next, his question is, have you done everything you originally set out to do? So maybe you at 16, 17, 18, your dreams and music, have you done everything you set out to do? I would say yes and more. And more. I mean, my bucket list as far as a musical career has been filled. You know what I mean? I think the only thing that would be missing from that list would be uh, the sustainability. You know what I mean? So every experience that you can have. Well, I never played Saturday Night Live. So that that there's that. Would have liked to have done that. But other than that, I mean, like, dude, I've played every room you could think of, every side from stadiums to dirty clubs. You know, we've done the award shows. We've gotten the nominations. I never expected to get nominated for a Grammy. Like, winning a Grammy was never even a, a – so that wasn't even on my list. So if that had happened, that would be like – I don't even know what to do with that. But everything on my list that I set out to do when I was a kid – you know, make great records, tour the world, make friends, have a good time. You know what I mean? Express myself, share my soul with uh, in my music. I've done that. You know what I mean? So I've done everything I wanted to do and more. I don't think there's a lot that I could, uh, you know, except for keep it going. That's the only thing I didn't do, which in a way is is great in and of itself like dude i came in i did what i did i said what i had to say and i dipped the fuck out and five five Can't, albums is actually that's a long time you know to yeah. be to be at the top so it's a great body of work you know what i mean and the band continues to do it they, like they're they've they've persevered and continued and succeeded and and the band has grown into a whole different like now like they're like more of a established like elder statesman of rock or whatever which i'm like i never thought that anything I, in my wildest dreams i never believed that 
or never believed that it could be possible that my little garage band from like I I thought like dude like I always believed that I would have a career right but where it's gone is way beyond anything that I I could have imagined. And uh, there's about five songs off of their last album and five songs off of the new album that are my most played songs of the year for those years on Spotify. Like man, they're putting out some bangers as good as ever now. It's it's impressive. Oh my god, the new record Ego Trip like. So long, like little, little known fact, like I had that record a year before it came out because the guys shared it with me. So if it, and I literally would listen to that album on repeat because I loved it so much. I'll tell you this about that record. It's the first record that they made without me that I wish I could have been part of. Like, I wish I had made those songs with them. It's that good. I love that record. I'm like, yeah. Oh damn. Like, and that for, for, uh, a band to release an album like that this far along in a career, like unheard of, you know what I mean? Like how are you going to be like 11, 12 albums in and then, and then bust out ego trip? Like, I don't know, like you've heard the record, so you know what I'm talking about, but anyone who hasn't heard it, I mean, like, yeah, dude, the naysayers and haters, like, and the, there's fans who like love a certain particular sound of pop rush, But for me, who knows what it's like on the inside to hear that stuff come from them, I am just, I'm floored. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, they've somehow pulled it off where they brought in electronic influences, but it's still Papa Roach. It's still heavy. It's still catchy. It's still rock, but they're taking the best of another genre and just adding that as like another weapon in their arsenal. And the, yeah. the four or five singles are all undeniable great songs. It's I'm, I'm really, I'm really impressed, but uh, um, so to this puts you on the spot a little bit but can you provide a question now to the podcast for the next guest that comes on without knowing who it is so just any question uh and then i ask i ask them and maybe it ends up being another drummer maybe it ends up being a best-selling author who knows but just without thinking too hard about it any question that comes to mind it could be serious it could be funny it could be heartfelt anything come to mind that i can ask the next guest to keep the chain going Dude, did I even answer the question that you that you asked me? And yes. I, Have question? you done everything right. you originally oh, set out one. to do? Yes. Yeah, you there had you a great go. answer. Okay, great. great. Okay. Awesome. Um, so if I have a question for the next guest, and I don't know who the, it could be anybody, right? It could anybody be anybody in the a creative. Are they all is it is your podcast a any, anyone that is amazing at what they do it could be in any industry it's usually more creative it's usually an author or a speaker or a musician okay just any anything what's okay, coming so to you without knowing so obviously like the person is gonna it's gonna be a person of note of note right successful in their field whatever that may be so i would have to say okay my question is this if you could go back in time and visit your childhood self, right? Let's say your 12-year-old self. We talked about the 12-year-old self earlier. And you can give that person any advice about what's coming in the future and how to handle it. If you can give your 12-year-old self any advice about your life, what would it be? Perfect. Yeah. There you go. And uh, So I have... Just one more question. Can you handle okay. one final question? I, I can, sure. All right. When you look back on your life and career, 
what are you most proud of and what are you most grateful for? Oh man. Um, I think the thing I'm most proud of and the thing I'm most grateful for is uh, the fact that I survived. <laughs> Dude, it's a big one. It's a big one. I almost died. I almost died. Shit almost killed me, bro. Not the career, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I was born with a, with a, a defect of uh, a disease of mind, body and spirit that, uh, that you manifest itself in addiction. You know what I mean? And, um, sometimes the, the pairing of, of this disease and, uh, large amounts of success aren't necessarily the best recipe for uh, a sustainable life. You know what I mean? And in my case, uh, that proved to be the case. And like I said, I think if I can look back on something, it would be like I showed up, you know, I said my piece, I did what I felt like I came here to do. And then I dipped out and that and now I get to live a completely other, you know, completely different life that is still sustained by the work I did back then. You know what I mean? Like all my work is what pays the bills today, but today I get to be a father and I get to be a reliable, responsible, trustworthy, you know, father and partner and family member and friend, someone with integrity, which, you know, as a kid, I had integrity. I was always raised, I was raised very well by my parents. You know, they instilled those values in me. It's just things got a little squirrely there in the middle with rock and roll and and the success and all that. But knowing now that, and like I said, like I was ready to say goodbye. I was ready to say goodbye in the biggest way you can, right? That's what the Paramore Sessions is about. But um, looking back on it now and, real, and seeing that like I made it, like uh, there's a saying in my circle, it's like, uh, we're living on overtime right now. It's like, I'm on God's time now. So it's now, it's now the things I choose to do, like I said, my priorities have shifted. Um, and if, if, uh, if another opportunity came my way either to make more music, let's say if there, if there's one thing I would like to do before I leave this planet, I would say, I would like to make, uh, another record with, my brothers in Papa Roach, whether it's, this doesn't even have to be a Papa Roach record. I just want to make a, a, a record with them again. I think it would be great. Um, that would be the last thing on my bucket list. And that would be, that would just be, but even then, if it never happens, just having the relationship I have with them now and living the life I get to live today, it's all gravy, baby. It's all gravy. Awesome. And as, as we wrap up, I, I just want to take a, a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a drummer. I want to acknowledge you for dreaming big from the start, having a vision of what's possible, putting in the work, following things through. 
and you achieving all the success that you achieved, whether it's the award nominations or the platinum certification or the number one singles, you showed the rest of us guitarists and musicians uh, what is truly possible if you dedicate yourself to the craft. We, we, we saw what the top looks like. Someone's done it, which means that we could do it if we apply ourselves. Uh, I want to thank you for all the music you created with Papa Roach. That's the soundtrack to my life, the soundtrack to millions of lives around the world. I mean, I grew up playing Last Resort. I grew up playing Scars. Uh, these were staples with the bands I played with. Uh, I, I want to acknowledge you for uh, the strength to overcome the, the addictions and for the courage to speak about the road to recovery, which helps helps a lot of people to see that if they're currently in a dark place, they can look at someone that's been where they've been and has gotten to the other side to show that you too can do this. If I can do it, you can do it. And uh, last but not least, I want to thank you as a fan since 15 years old. I want to thank you for sitting down with me uh, here today for the last two plus hours uh, for this for this interview, answering questions that I've wanted to know the answers to for a long time, multiple decades. Uh, so thank you so much, Dave, for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on, dude. It was it was such a pleasure, dude. And uh, yeah, man, thanks for reaching out. And uh, I would love to do this again sometime. You know what I mean? If uh, if there's anything that ever comes up that uh, that you feel like, hey, dude, I, I want to have Dave on again. Like we should do it again. That'd be cool. Hey man, I got I got page after page of questions that have not been answered yet. So we'll do a part two, and uh, you know when when there's news of things dropping in the future, uh, we'll we'll get you back on. We'll do round two. For sure, absolutely, man. Thanks again, dude. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're very welcome to our listeners. Thanks for sticking with us for the last couple hours. Uh, to the Dave fans, the Papa Roach fans, and we'll see you on the next episode. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message and I'll see you on the next episode.